What do the classic Coca-Cola pop and pour sound effect and the sound effects for Star Wars and other galactic funk, the disco version of the Star Wars soundtrack, have in common? They were both created by Suzanne Ciani, American composer, musician, Grammy Award nominee, sound designer, and luminary in electronic music. In the 70s and 80s, Ciani was a pioneer in synthesized music, appearing on programs such as The David Letterman Show, and scoring soundtracks to movies such as Lily Tomlin's film The Incredible Shrinking Woman, marking her as the first solo female composer of a Hollywood film. To date, she has more albums than can be counted on hands and feet, and even an award-winning documentary about her life as an electronic music pioneer. We spoke to Suzanne on the phone from her home in the Bay Area. Thank you so much for being here with us today. So I just want to quickly, briefly introduce myself. It's been a while since we've last spoken, so I'm Arushi. I'm also a sound synthesist and Hindustani vocalist. I actually write music under the name Os, and I opened for you a year ago, so that was, I guess, a year ago at this point, so that was quite phenomenal. Really excited that you're here with us today. I wanted to just briefly introduce you first and then go into just a few questions I have about you know, what it's been like for you to be here in the Bay and how your art has grown and progressed with your experiences here. So let's get started. Suzanne, your career in audio has been, I mean, it's been quite phenomenal. You have been nominated for five Grammy Awards. You won the Moog Innovation Award in 2017. And honestly, your work has inspired so many artists like me. So thank you for everything you've done. First of all, you came to the Bay a long time ago. Uh, what brought you here? Well, my original first arrival in the Bay Area was when I went to graduate school at the University of California, Berkeley. And uh, that was in 1968. I drove across country from the East Coast. And uh, I'll never forget that moment of driving up University Avenue. And it was a whole new world. So was there any, like before you came here, did you have any idea or inkling of the fact that you were going to get into electronic music or you came here to study the piano more extensively? You know, I came here to get a degree in musical composition. I came here specifically because they paid me to come. So I, everybody at the, in those days would go to Paris and study with Nadia Boulanger. Philip Glass, Steve Reich, you know, everybody studied with her. And I was accepted by her, but I wanted to be independent. And I got a full fellowship to UC Berkeley. I had no idea even where the West Coast was. Really, I'd never been out of the Boston area, except maybe to go to Europe, you know. From, um, but I, I came out here and it was the absolute perfect place for me to be just this geography alone and what was here impacted my life from then on that's fantastic so really i mean this this call for independence is what brought you here and i love that because the bay area is i think in the us uh, very much so like a place that you come to for just finding yourself in a lot of ways and, and, and I have to say, it was the right time. I mean, 1968, you can't imagine. I mean, it, it was just after the, you know, summer of free love and 
you know, it was a very uh, volatile time politically. And that also was a huge contributor to my creative force field in those days because nothing that had happened before remained connected. I came out here playing Chopin and I, you know, within half a year, I was uh, meeting Don Buchla or within a year or so, meeting Don Buchla and shifting my music to a completely different mode, electronics. Tell us a little bit more about that, like how you how you met Don, but something that I'm, I'm really personally curious to hear about is what was your first experience with the boucle as an instrument? Well, you know, in those days, there was a, a public access electronic music center housed at Mills College. So technically, for $5 an hour, you could go in and fool around with uh, a boucle 100, a Moog modular, and a lot of surplus gear you know, from the, from the army, et cetera. Uh, nobody ever bothered me there, and I could spend endless hours just working out with what they had there, and that was my start. Um, I also, you know, as luck would have it, um, went to a summer course at Stanford University at the Artificial Intelligence Lab, and the father of computer music, Max Matthews, was teaching this course, and John Chowning, the father of FM synthesis, uh, was also teaching there. And so that also was a huge advantage to me. We worked at the Artificial Intelligence Lab. We had to be there at like five in the morning because that was the only time that we could get the computers. The computers were gargantuan mainframe computers. Nothing was real time. You would, you know, you would uh, specify your data and the next day you'd come in and get a tape with your music. So all these coincidences really uh, just put me in the right place being here. I actually went to Stanford and I would definitely think that like everything you're describing is very different from current day. Um, <laughs> today we have today, I mean, <laughs> very different. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I believe that uh, the CCRMA, the Karma, uh, Karma wasn't around back then mm -hmm. um, when uh, you were working at the artificial intelligence lab. So what did you learn at the lab, like working with these professors? Well, you know, the most lasting, first of all, just being in the presence of Max Matthews was just such a joy. This is the most brilliant, brilliant man. And, you know, he passed away a few years ago, and uh, but he remained in the Bay Area. But he worked extensively in Paris with Boulez and all over the world. I mean, he was the consummate inventor of interfaces for computers and you know musicians. So he did a conducting platform for Boulez so that he could conduct you know, uh, digitally um, an electronic orchestra. And uh, John, of course, was just at that time, John Chowning was just unraveling his understanding of this FM synthesis that was going to explode within a year or two when Yamaha licensed it 
and the DX7 came out and on and on it went. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was a very fertile time then. Fascinating. Uh, yeah, I think that I, I think the Bay Area back then was, a, I mean, still today, but back then, definitely, it was, like you said, a very fertile time. And so much was happening here. So many new things were being built in all different aspects. So um, I, I, you mentioned that, you know, you used to go to the Tape Music Center, which is which was at Mills for say $5 an hour and you could work with these synthesizers. And was that really when you started, um, I guess, honing your like relationship or partnership to the Buchla as you've like famously described it to be? Yes, that was the beginning. That kind of whetted my appetite. And, you know, that was when I made the decision. Of course, I was lucky enough to meet Don Buchla and that was another coincidence because my boyfriend at the time his art professor, Harold Paris at the university, lived next door to Don Buchla. So they had these huge uh, warehouses down by the railroad tracks in Oakland. And Harold Paris said to me once, oh, you have to meet my neighbor. So it was done on a very social kind of unexplained, unexpected level. I went over to Don Buchla's and of course my jaw dropped because I saw this warehouse, you know, a studio filled with modules all blinking away. And it was just, it was just an amazing thing. And I decided right then that I was going to work for Don Buchla. So when I finished graduate school, I went to his loft, studio, business, whatever, and uh, started work, soldering, reading schematics, and putting things together, things that I, I had never done before. Uh, but all the people that worked there were not threatening. I mean, they were, uh, they were Buddhists, they were Indian dancers, they were poets, they were, you know, kind of eccentric, cultural friends of Don's. And, uh, you know, the story is I, I was fired after the first day because uh, they found um, a cold soldering joint. And Don was very, very stern, very strict. <laughs> I mean, we weren't even allowed to talk when we were working, you know. And at the end of the day, he just said, you're fired. And I said, no, I'm not going. You have no proof that that was my bad soldering joint. And I just showed up the next day and he let me stay. And so that was that. I mean, I, I worked there for $3 an hour. I learned so much, you know, just being in the, in the, you know, the cocoon of that amazing inventor's psyche and how he worked was something that stayed with me, you know, to this day. I have such a great respect for him. I, I call him the Leonardo da Vinci of, you know, analog instrument design. He also did digital instruments, but what I loved and what I became intimate with was the 200 series. Thank you so much for telling us that story. I appreciate that you, you know, went back the next day. I like <laughs> that, you know, the perseverant nature a lot. And I guess I'm curious, 
when you were working for Dawn and on soldering and building out these synthesizers, what did you speak about with him? He didn't speak a lot. He was a very uh, internalized person, maybe probably autistic spectrum when he was young. Uh, so we didn't we didn't talk. He was not a talk. He made noises. You know, he would walk around going, <clears throat> you know, he, he was not conversant. And I wanted so much to learn more about what we were doing. And I asked if we could start a class where we would, you know, there were other people working there who also were interested. And so we started a class and Don was wonderful. He's took on the role of teaching and he's, you know, the class was kind of mm, informal and yet very formal. And uh, again, this is another story because after the second class, I was told that women wouldn't be allowed. And uh, he said, don't take that personally, you know, but I said, how can I not take it personally? when I'm the only woman in the class. So in those days, you know, this is the dark ages and you probably haven't had firsthand experience with what it was like to be female in the context of, you know, a male bastion of work. And uh, it, it was, it, it took a long time to kind of, get uh, leverage and functionality and visibility and to be, you know, to be seen as a person and not as a, as an objectified female. So that's what it was like in the old days. And Don was 10 years older than I was. So, uh, you know, he was already a different generation. We were starting to be liberated. You know, Berkeley in the 60s, they were, you know, women were throwing their bras into piles to be burned. You know, everything was kind of erupting and shifting. It was a big wave of women's liberation. But that was, uh, as I say, a wave. And uh, it eventually receded. And now, you know, I, I think from my perspective, we're at the top of another wave, and it's really exciting. You know, there's been real progress and technology and women, and it's all an, kind of a, an open play field now. Don't you think? Do you think that? I don't know what your experience was. Um, definitely a, very, a little different from um, what you've described. Like when I was in at Stanford in computer science classes, we still we now have definitely a lot more representation than you did back then. But I also think just as technology is being more understood, more like the gender role and balance is kind of it's balancing out, but it's not it's not there yet. I definitely still think it's a minority. People are still advocating or I was still advocating for more women in technology when I was in college. And in the workplace, you still see like a big shift with music. I definitely feel synthesis, modular synthesis. There's 
very few women still, which always surprises me, but more so than when you, uh, you know, became the first kind of synth pioneer for America, really. Things have changed since then. But I think a lot of the struggles are still the same. They just might not be as intense or they might not happen on as big of a scale. I want to I delve a little deeper into something you just said around um, things were changing, the role of women was changing, women were challenging their own like roles in society. Did you, did you find that to be kind of like across the board or do you think that specifically because, you know, you were working with synthesizers, a technology that was new, related to computers and, you know, the general Bay Area creation of the internet and that whole movement around just democratizing access to technology. I think the role of women in that, are you specifically saying that that was, that was harder for women? Actually, now that I know more, uh, I have a theory that really it was women who pioneered this intimate, you know, relationship with musical technology. I didn't know about it at the time because women just traditionally didn't have visibility. I found out later that there was uh, Daphne Oram in Delia Derbyshire and, you know, these these women who were pioneers in uh, electronics, in musical electronics. And for me, it was... Uh, I think it was the same thing because because we didn't really have access to a lot of the established avenues of creation, music creation. I didn't have, you know, in those days you needed to have, uh, you needed to interface with an orchestra or you had to be a conductor. Women weren't viewed as viable conductors. Um, you know, the, the, it was so limited, the perspective for women in music that it was depressing and electronics made us independent. So I knew if I, I just intuitively knew that if I had this buccal instrument, I could do it all myself. I didn't need anybody else. It was just exactly what I needed to go around the system that didn't want me. Uh, so I think that that is something that happened over and over again. Yeah. So when Dawn said, you know, that you you can't learn this because you're a woman, what did you say? It took me years, years, a lifetime to really understand what was going on then. And what was going on when he said, don't take it personally, and I was the only woman, was really, it wasn't that he didn't want me in the class not me, Suzanne, he didn't want me in the class. It was that the men in the class were uncomfortable. They were not comfortable, you know, being seen and threatened by a woman. If I said something, you know, that was more intelligent or whatever, it made them look bad. And they didn't want to look bad and they didn't want to, you know, it was all about the comfort zone for men. And it took me years to understand that, that men really don't have anything against women. It's just that they're in a men's club and they enjoy it 
and they don't want to bother with interrupting that, you know, guy thing. So, you know, now here we are 50 years later and women have their own club. You mm -hmm. know, we're, yeah, we're not trying to exclude men or anything, but, you know, sometimes it's, it's okay just to be in your own comfortable context and move forward that way without all the other, you know, energy systems getting in the way. I don't know what it's like, you know, for your generation. If you are in a room, you know, learning with a lot of men, is it completely comfortable now? I think it really depends on the person. Again, because I study computer science and I've been in rooms with a few women, I'm very used to being still sometimes the only woman. But I definitely, I think that it's hard for people to speak up when it's the first time they're experiencing that. I hear it from my friends still. It's, it's, it's just so dependent on the, on, the, on the context, but it still happens for sure. And I think that, you know, like you, I think I'm, I'm noticing there's this theme here of, you know, you saying, no, I'm not willing to be treated this way or no, I'm not okay with the status quo with which the philosophy of that very much still exists and needs to be adopted by women who, you know, are, are the spokespeople for their kind or, you know, are saying that, yes, we don't traditionally, haven't traditionally belonged here, but we do now. You know, we were speaking briefly about female synthesists, and I mentioned that there's still few, and it surprises me often. And sometimes I get messages from people being like, hey, I would love to speak to you about your process. Like, we want to cover more women artists. And I often, you know, pause and I'm like, okay, well, I am an artist first and then I'm a woman. So it definitely still exists. There's this kind of complex feeling that the two, you know, being regarded a female artist and an artist and being known for my art and not the fact that I'm a woman and I write art. It's, it's, a, very, it's a very confusing feeling. So I hear you a lot on what you've just described to me. You have... Uh, you know, beaten all the odds in a lot of ways, you know, like really broken out from all of these preconceived notions that were kind of put on you. And I guess I was wondering if you tell us more about, you know, what you think you did with your career that, you know, enabled you to be so successful in a field that was very much so a kind of a man's world in a lot of ways. Well, you know, the lucky thing for me, when I went to New York City, and, you know, I went there to do a live Buchla concert and I fell in love with New York and I decided to stay. Um, I never went back to L.A. I'd been there for a couple of years. Um, I think. Um, OK, I was just watching a tree outside and I got distracted. <laughs> so, and the ocean, you know, the waves are flowing and I that's my, you know, my backdrop. Um, but I was lucky. I got to New York. I was the only one. I, you know, I brought something completely new to the industry. I was, I was hungry. I was starving and I needed money. And, uh, you know, I looked for the money and I found it in advertising. And advertising was looking for something new they didn't need to understand. The record companies were not interested because they were they wanted me to sing they wanted me to play the guitar 
uh, I wasn't going to get any headway there, but I could make up something new in advertising. And I had the market cornered. There was, I had no competition really. Uh, and so that's a secret. You know, if you want to succeed, pick a place where there isn't anybody else. You know? <laughs> it gets harder and harder to do that. But that was a secret of my success. And also, you know, as you've noted, and it's, it's a definite character trait of mine, pure stubbornness. Uh, you know, I don't care what it is. I'm like a, you know, a gnarly dog with a, you know, I just can't let go. And I have to keep going. I have, you know, I'm a salmon swimming upstream. Wherever I have to go, that's where I'm going. And uh, that has served me very well. It's an instinctive thing. Uh, I don't even think about it. I can't stop it. I can't help it. Uh, and of course, on the other level, I've never had children. Uh, as it turns out, I couldn't have children. But I think that's an added, you know, dimension of, you know, challenge for for any woman. But there I was in New York. I, you know, I had my bukla. I, I was an instinctive creator. I just made sounds that seemed so natural to me to make. You know, it was a kind of poetry, make the sound of heat, the sound of coal, the sound of, you know, Coca-Cola, the sound of whatever it was, you know. And uh, so I was rewarded for that. What I always wanted, though, was not that. That was, that was, I did, I worked as an artist, but it was really to make money. But what I wanted was my recording career. And that was much harder to get off the ground. And again, I had to bootstrap it. I, I did my own. I produced my first two albums uh, because I couldn't get a label interested. In those days, you had to have a record deal. You couldn't make a CD. You couldn't make anything that you could sell. There was no streaming. There was no online. You actually needed a record deal to make a record. And... Uh, that wasn't going to, that wasn't happening for me. Uh, finally, I got one in Japan. Uh, but, you know, the, the, uh, I, I think if you wanted to distill or abstract some of the dynamics of this, because, you know, the, the situation changes, but the challenges are the same. You know, how do you get your, how do you go forward? How do you get your work out there? And what are the, openings for you now and that is all um, a learning process you know you bump into a wall and you say okay you know how do I get there from here and you turn right or left and go forward and get another wall and so I think uh, the I think the stubbornness helps you know where you 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 value without consciousness what it is you have to say. It's not outside of you. It's like who you are. You know, if you're motivated to do this thing, you're going to do it. It's not a conversation uh, like, should I do it? Could I do it? Am I supposed to do it? No. Uh, am I good enough? No. No. Do you think I'm good enough? What? <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> it doesn't matter what I think about you. It's you. So, you know, I notice with young artists, a lot of time they're looking for validation outside of themselves. And that is already, you know, a weak place to be. And you, you can't summon your force, your energy, if you're looking outside yourself. You know, you have to please yourself. That's, that's where the energy is. Nobody can give it to you. Uh, so there, I'm preaching. So when you were in New York, what were you looking for? You mentioned you wanted to build your, your um, you know, your recording practice, actually release music. Was that the goal? Well, when I went there originally, I performed this quadraphonic concert on a Buchla 200 uh, in an uptown art gallery. And my goal was to perform. I was a lot, my take on this electronics was, you know, partly because I was under the, uh, you know, tutelage of Don Buchla. And by the time I met him, which was about five years after he started designing these instruments, he had a vision of a performance instrument. This already was a unique vision because a lot of these electronic instruments were not thought of as performance instruments. They were studio instruments. They were big, they were heavy, they couldn't be moved. They were, you know, they were for recording, for layering sounds one after the other, not for generating a whole, you know, experience live in the moment. But I was, uh, proselytized by Buchla into believing that this was a live performance instrument. So that was my goal. I found an agent, which was amazing, a, a lovely guy who was going to book me in concerts. And I thought, this is amazing. He got me a concert at Lincoln Center in Avery Fisher Hall, and they refused to put up the four speakers. They said, no, 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 we, we can't put speakers up in the back of the theater. And I said, well, I can't play if I don't have quad. So I didn't play. And then, you know, what was next? You know, one thing leads to another. I thought, okay, we have to change all the theaters. And I started a little corporation, a nonprofit. I got everybody from the Audio Engineering Society on my board, and the idea was we were going to uh, redesign Avery Fisher Hall to be a modern theater. And they were trying to fix the theater because of the acoustics. The acoustics were bad. Uh, anyway, I couldn't get that off the ground. And, you know, one thing leads to another. Uh, I, I did want to be a performer. Then, I had personal issues. You know, I was very sick. Uh, my bukla broke. Uh, part of my bukla was stolen. All of those. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was as if, you know, you can't even imagine, you know, if you were a violinist and suddenly your violin was gone, you could go get another one. But the bukla, you, you couldn't just get a bukla. 
you know, they just weren't around. And, uh, and in those days, you know, part of the problem was just geography. You know, if it broke in New York, I'd ship it to the West Coast, Don would fix it, he'd ship it back East and it would break on the way. You know, just the journey itself was defeating. Uh, anyway, it was traumatic. It was totally traumatic. And I, I recovered and I adapted. By that time, music technology was flourishing. You know, the Japanese companies were coming in, all the, the individuals, Dave Smith, Tom Oberheim, uh, Dom Buchla, uh, uh, what's his name, T uh, with the drum machine. Why do I always forget him? Oh, my God. Uh, you know, they were all bought out. And so suddenly there was this huge new play field with electronics. And so my studio, which had become, you know, the number one high-tech music production studio in Manhattan, uh, became, a, you know, kind of a beta test center for all these companies. I worked with Roland and Yamaha and, and uh, everybody but Moog. <laughs> because I thought Moog was a threat to the boot club, but um, whatever. Uh, I switched gears. I moved forward in what that music technology was. It was about recording. And I never came back to the mindset of live, non-keyboard, you know, analog performance until five years ago when... I did my first comeback concert in San Francisco. So at the, uh, the gray area, a wonderful performance space uh, with great sound system. And, uh, and that restarted this whole chapter in my life, which has you know, been about my touring the world, playing the bukla now. Yeah, and I mean, you perform so regularly. It's quite a joy to see that you're so active in your career right now. For me, it's very inspiring. So, you, you know, you went from, from this instrument that really challenged the way we think about composition and, you know, music and creation to the piano, which is, you know, a very traditional, has a keyboard black and white keys way of thinking and you your career has like you know been at these kind of extreme ends in the instruments and tools that you've been using so how has that shift for you well it's really funny actually because uh in the old days Don Buchla was so against any traditional mechanical keyboard being associated with the instrument, it was considered, you know, an inappropriate interface. And I, even though I was a pianist, I, I never wanted, I, I was out there trying to, you know, initiate appreciation of this instrument. And I didn't want confusion about what, what it was or how you played it. So I stopped any, you know, I, I never played the piano for the 10 years that I worked with the Bukla exclusively. And then, of course, I gradually went back to the piano. I toured playing the piano. Uh, 
And now I'm back to the bukla. And again, I cannot touch the piano. So my brain, yeah, I know it's weird. It's so weird. Um, Because even bukla's, you know, wife was a pianist. And in the end, he was not against the piano. But in those early days, the keyboard uh, was the threat. Because honestly, if you put a keyboard on it, which is what Moog did, people thought that it was about the sound, just making a sound and then playing it on the keyboard. And for Don, it was about the way you controlled the sound. It was a voltage controlled system that gave you huge power. I could control spatial movement, filters, envelopes, sequences, you know, all kinds of things all at once. And I think that the common denominator for me is that I'm a composer. So I look at these, both of these things, the piano and the bukla as tools for composition. And the tool, you know, pretty much determines the the result. I mean, you use the tool and you, you that's how you come up with what you come up with. So um, they're very different, but they have in common this compositional mindset, which has to do with uh, how is composition accomplished? You know, if you look at a Beethoven sonata, you know, it's so clear. You get the, the theme, then you get the next theme, then you get the elaboration and the exploration of where that theme can go. Then it goes into this wild section and then it comes back to remind you of where you came from. And then you have this, you know, flourishing gesture at the end, maybe a cadenza and then a closing. And that type of architecture and structure is something that I bring to my electronic music. And it's also a little, it's like jazz because I have starting materials. So I have four sequences, four 16 stage sequences that I used even in the seventies. I, when I went back, I just kind of looked up what I had done and took off from there. And those are the raw material. It's, it's kind of like in jazz where you might be riffing on a, you know, a standard tune. And it doesn't define what comes out, but it gives you a frame, framework and a place to start. And uh, so that's the compositional. And then the way you use those materials, you know, I'm astonished because when I studied composition, I, I hated going through, you know, the late 20th century where composers were always looking at systems. You know, they weren't melodic and they weren't, you know, harmonic. They were 12 tone. They were uh, modular. You know, they were things that were mapped on to the, the, the idea of composition, you know, using uh, Boulez used, uh, you know, little nodules, modules of, pitches that could be inverted and retrograded and all these things. 
And I didn't like that because it seemed um, extraneous to the direct, you know, transmission of emotion, which was what music was supposed to be, you know. But now I see, you know, the Bukla operations sometimes in that light, you know, I, I can do variations on thematic material using techniques that are very much uh, part of the language of these machines. You know, that there is a whole new set of things that you can do to musical materials. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Playing the piano versus working with a synthesizer, it feels very different. What you can accomplish is very different, though I think often architecturally, I don't know, maybe I do similar things across the two in the way I compose, maybe the way you just described it, I do resonate with. Do you, do you find that your structure, though, architecturally, is similar between the two? Absolutely. I mean, for me now, you know, my starting point is always the waves. You know, uh, the Bukla makes amazing waves. And they're spatial. You know, you can move them around. And it's so quad. And it's such a nice starting point. And uh, so I just find that in my concerts now, I... I gravitate towards that kind of comfort zone of starting and and then the whole thing emerges out of that. We were talking about how architecturally, you know, they're similar and actually, you know, I was thinking because I write I write in the sunny classical music and on synthesizers versus when I sing versus when I play the piano, what I'm trying to do is the same thing but it just is of course, very different because my medium is changing. But structurally, I often follow the same kind of traditional format of composition that Hindustani classical musicians Mm -hmm. have. And you are describing a very similar um, experience with how, you know, you learned the piano and with a more like Western classical focus and you're taking the learnings compositionally from that training of yours into this new tool? You know, um, in the day, I studied Indian music at Ali Akbar College of Music, and I was just overwhelmed by, you know, discovering a non-Western tradition. I was uh, also dismayed because I knew I, I would never be as good at it as, you know, as a person who grew up in that tradition, because it takes a lifetime to do that. Uh, but I think there's still, there's some of that impact with me also, because what I like about the Indian, you know, you're going away from it, you could call it a tonic and feeling the distance, you know, from that. And then you come back to it and, you know, there's this tension that occurs between, uh, you know, a bass note you know, the tambura and and everything else that's going on. Mm -hmm. And I also use that. I mean, I'm not harmonically ambitious. I, you know, you know, traditional Western music had this harmonic motion that, you know, you went to the tonic, then you went to the dominant, then you went to blah, blah, blah. And and, uh, I I think that the Indian uh, approach serves me very well. You know, uh, and I could do more of it 
actually, because I'm my my uh, harmony is very static. I really am just in one mode, period, and I don't know. It sounds beautiful. I think at the end of the day, you kind of have to listen to what feels right to you, right? And yeah. if that's where you're 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 at, then you know, that's how you'll compose. And I just think that it's important to listen to yourself. I, I'm curious. So did you take classes at the Ali Akbar College once you moved back to the Bay? I took them while I was in, um, while I was in graduate school. Oh, mm. wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I was just going to say, I, my ambition was to study tabla, but the tabla never arrived from India. And so I ended up uh, studying flute with a player called Sachdev. Do you know him? Sachdev? Wow. <laughs> he, he is amazing. That's an incredible story. Tabla just never arrived. Yeah, I guess it was arrived. very... <laughs> 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 that's incredible. Because that's like um, the school was started in... I forget the exact year, but I assume it was like very early on. Yeah, it had just it had just opened, really. So how did you hear about it? Uh, you know, just hanging out, uh, you know, in the quad at Berkeley. That's how you learned everything, you know, just outside, you know, on campus, talking to people. Yeah. That's incredible. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I actually, I take classes currently at the Ali Akbar School of uh, College of Music. Um, you do? Now? Yeah, I do. Oh, what are you, what are you studying? I'm studying, well, vocal, um, just as vocalist. Uh -huh. uh, I, I trained when I was in Delhi. I grew up in Delhi as a, as a teenager for like 10, 15 years. And then I moved here and I stopped because I was, you know, at Stanford studying computer science, learning about synthesis and when I started writing music again, I guess at this point, like three years ago, I started singing again and got back into Hindustani classical. And now I basically just write rags on synthesizers. Fabulous. Yeah. It's been quite phenomenal, actually, having this resource in the Bay Area. I mean, has Indian for Indian classical music. It's incredible to be here. Definitely some of the best tutelage because, you know, it's again guru and uh, disciple-based uh, learning system. So uh, vocal, and I'm also starting some more instrumental improvisation classes. I really want to convert my synthesizer into a sitar. Into what? Into what? Into a sitar. Sitar? Sitar. Um, oh, oh, sitar. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sitar. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So yeah, that's kind of like some of the things that I hope to, you know, like, I really want to take Indian classical music to a new place with electronic music. I don't really think a lot of people have been doing that or have done that. So and I love Indian classical music so much, I just want more people to listen to it. So I, that's my, um, my, my scheme is to, you know, like, make it a little bit more popular by playing it on synthesizers. So I mean, yeah, the Ali Akbar College of Music is fantastic. I would love to talk to you more about like your life period in the Bay Area. So, you know, like the time you spent in Bolinas over the past two decades. And I guess some of the, your, your return to the Bukla and, you know, like how the Bay Area might have shaped the second part of your sonic life or third part. I'm not sure how to break this up. <laughs> 
Yeah, I feel a little bit like I'm going in circles, you know, uh, because I started in the East. I came to Berkeley. I went to L.A. I went to Manhattan. Now I came back to Berkeley. Um, and maybe I'm just going to stay put now. It's been almost 30 years, actually. It's a long time. Oh. Long mm -hmm. time that I've been here, but I've been traveling, you know, a lot, uh, especially the last five years. Oh, actually, even before that, because I was touring with piano. But um, I, I don't know about you, but I, I love it here. I mean, it's so seductive and beautiful and perfect. I wasn't born here, and so. I don't feel as grounded as, you know, there's still part of me that kind of feels more grounded when I go to the East Coast, but I can't live there anymore. You know, it's too, mm, you know, I'm too addicted to nature out here and to the open spaces and to the beauty and to the culture. And, you know, I, I just love it here. Uh, it's like going to summer camp. Uh, I don't know. It's uh, it's so perfect. But I'm jealous of people who were born here and are rooted. Do you know what I'm saying? Because you weren't born here, were you? No, I was born in Delhi. I'm very far from home. So I get what you're saying. But um, I came back. I How did I come back? I came back for a year. I certainly wasn't planning to move here. That's how it happens. You know, you trick yourself into, you know, just moving, you know, and, and then you get stuck there. So um, I came for a year uh, because I wanted to move to Italy, but my father was very sick and he didn't want me to leave the country. And my sister was out here, one of my sisters. I have four. And uh, so I came out here for a year and then never left because that's, that's how that happens. Um, I reconnected with Don Buchla, and I wasn't interested in getting back into the Buchla. That didn't happen until really just before he died. We were friends. We played tennis all the time. I loved going to Berkeley. I loved seeing him there. I loved his wife, Nanique. Uh, she's French and lovely. Uh, so we had a wonderful kind of social rapport. And then at a certain point, he said, um, you know, if you're ever thinking of getting back to the Bukla, now is the time. Because I'm going to sell the company. And he offered me, you know, a deal I couldn't refuse. And I got a 200E system. My 200, for some reason, couldn't be repaired. I only had half of it anyway, but uh, that's another long story. Uh, but the 200E came into my studio and sat there for a long time. It takes a long time to warm up, I think, you know, to these machines because you need to give them time. It's not an immediate thing. It's not like going up to a piano and hitting a key and getting a sound. You know, you have to, uh, you have to develop a rapport. 
you know, you have to sit and get nothing for a long time before you get something. Uh, but eventually I warmed up to the machine and once you get into it, there's no stopping it, you know, then you're on the railroad tracks and it keeps going. So now, you know, the machine is very different. I mean, I was not in love with the 200E in particular. A lot of the modules were not as performable or as controllable as the 200 versions. So I got some clones and now the Buchla company is remaking some of the, you know, really wonderful 200 modules that I love, but I love it all. It's, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's half of, you know, I, I, when I first came back, I, I had trouble tuning, you know, it wouldn't tune. And, uh, you know, Don's attitude about all this, cause I do use pitches and you do too, right? You use pitches. And that's a, you know, that's a valid musical parameter that you should be able to control. And, uh, I came to Don, I said, Don, this I cannot tune this. And he tried to tune it. And he said, you know, yeah, it just doesn't tune. I said, well, what am I going to do? And he said, <laughs> he said, do something else, you know, make noise. And I thought, oh my, no, you know, there's the stubborn thing coming up. Because I, I do think that the, you know, the propensity for using these instruments did become this kind of free-for-all making noise kind of thing. And that's fine, but you should have a choice. And, uh, you know, so for, with a lot of determination, I, you know, I got clones of the, and, and handmade modules that allowed me to tune. Uh, and so now I can tune, but let's just say in a nutshell, that when I listen to my performances from 1975, you know, Buchla Concerts 1975, there was a lot more going on than there is now for my performing because the nature of the machine was different, you know, and I, I feel that I'm working with a much more limited system now also, because I have to travel all over the world, my system in the day was huge. You know, I could never take it on an airplane. Uh, so there's a trade-off, and I, I guess I should be happy. It's been quite a journey. I mean, it's. I do think they sound different. I've heard a lot of your recordings, and it's funny. You would think that we would be able to recreate the things of the past, <laughs> but we actually can't. Mm, right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Now they are going to reproduce the 200. And uh, so that will be interesting uh, to see whether that leads to a different, you know, part of it is just the performability. You know, I have a digital sequencer now and it's very compact, but I have no access to it while I'm performing. I can't leap in there and mm. grab a knob. Uh, so things like that. Uh, but I developed other techniques, you know, for for accessing and making changes. And it's all wonderful. It's all great. I'm not complaining. Are you 
focusing on performance now? Like, what what is your current, you know, obsession with with your craft? Well, you know, the pandemic has allowed me to change gears because I was on this, uh, you know, unstoppable momentum of running all over the world. I mean, just since the pandemic started, I was supposed to be in Amsterdam, Paris, Nantes, uh, Italy, you know, England, uh, you know, I'm home. I love it. I'm, I'm happy to get off that train for a while. I've wanted to put out some of my concerts and I never had the time. So now I'm planning to do some quadraphonic releases. I'm going through the concerts, you know, 50 of them or whatever, how many there are. And, uh, you know, picking my favorites. So I'm working on that now. I'm also working with the Buchla company to uh, redesign my favorite module, which is called the MARF, the Multiple Arbitrary Function Generator. And that I feel is indispensable for live performance. Uh, and it's no longer in the, you know, in their catalog. So we're going to bring that back and change it a little bit. Uh, I'm working on that and, uh, and I'm collaborating. Uh, I'm, I'm working with Moog, oddly enough. I just did a thing with their subharmonicon, which is a brilliant little analog instrument. Rhythmically, I'm working with the Moog One. I'm collaborating with a composer in France, and uh, we're doing, uh, you know, collaborative pieces together. And you know, so there's always more to do than you have time to do it. But now I'm grateful that I have more time than I've had in years. So phenomenal talking to you today, Suzanne. I really appreciate all the all the the stories. I think I have enough inspirational fodder to last me for a long time after this conversation. So really appreciate you taking the time, and I'm looking forward to the new releases you have coming out, and also uh, re-listening to, or I guess first time listening for me, some of your older work that you're about to release. Great. Great. Well, it's been lovely speaking with you. And as soon as we're able to stop sheltering, we should plan to get together in the city at some point. Yeah. I would absolutely love that for sure. Until then, I wish you good health and we'll speak very soon. Thank you, Arishti. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure.